Jesus, would you use this time together to give each precious saint sitting here a fresh encounter with you. We pray in your name. Amen. Billy Joel, the pop icon. He is not a fan of one of his biggest songs. Do you know which one it is? Here's three hints. It's a karaoke favorite. It tells 40 years of U.S. history from the year he was born, 1949 through 1989. And it includes a manic rapid fire of 118 people and events. What is it? We didn't light the fire. We didn't start the fire. Yes. These are what these are two of the things that Billy Joel has said publicly about this song. One, it's impossible to perform live. If I miss just one of the rapid fire lyrics, I'm in big trouble. And two, he said it's the first and last time he ever wrote song lyrics before the melody. And his comment is, I think it shows because it's terrible musically. So love this song or hate it, it does make some important observations, both in the specific historical events it names, but also its observations and assertions, particularly found in the chorus. He says, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire, but when we are gone, it will still burn on. And then he says, and on and on and on and on a a lot. Um, Sorry, not sorry for putting that earworm in your head. Um, So about this course, it it is historically accurate that we are inextricably linked to our history. While we may not be at fault for the particular choices that people made, we do inherit the ongoing consequences of the sins of those who came before us all the way back to Adam, and we have the responsibility to mitigate their ongoing harm. But... I do find this song to be theologically lacking, and I don't think a song needs to be explicitly Christian to be theologically viable, but this one, because there was a second Adam in the person of Jesus Christ who came to interrupt and overcome our broken history, it will not go on and on and on like this forever without hope. In Jesus, we are one with all the believers on the planet today and with all the saints who preceded us through history. We have a common union. And when we blend those words together, we can say we are in communion. We have a common union in the person of Jesus who unites us. We have a common union in the work that Jesus did on our behalf. His death and resurrection are the events that unite us. And we have a common union in the way that we worship him. Throughout history, all the way back to the time of Christ, there's been a remarkable, uniform way that Christians have worshipped in what we call the four movements of the liturgical rhythm. My professor is sitting here who taught me this. Gather, listen, feast, and go. Gathering is what we're doing here. I see a lawn full of saints who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listening is what you're so politely doing to this nervous novice preacher up here right now. Feasting is when we transition to the Eucharist and we feast on Christ. And we end the service with a commissioning to go, not to receive this for our own sake, but to share it for the good of the world. 
Later, I'll have an opportunity during the announcements to share with you how our outing in Lynn at the end of next week will incorporate all four movements of this liturgy in a very embodied way. I'm super excited about it. More on that later. But for now, I'm going to dial in on that second movement of the four parts of the liturgy, listening. We're going to talk about listening while we practice listening. Listening is all about story. God's word is a story. Mako was with us last week, and he shared that from Genesis to Revelation, God's word is a story that God keeps wanting to gift us a home and a family. Jesus is the embodiment of God's story. The entire Bible is the story of Jesus. It's full of him throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The place we find his story most explicitly told is in the Gospels. We hear tales about his time with us here on earth, and from them we learn he was a brown-skinned healer. He empowered women. He opposed religious elitism. He preached a kingdom paradigm that was in direct contradiction to an empire paradigm. He literally flipped the tables on exploitation and oppression. He was fully God and fully man, a reality that is beyond our limited comprehension, but yet we can contemplate that his eternal godness was compelled by love to put on human flesh to set us free and to make us agents of that agape love and the freedom that it brings. Our stories are also part of this grand story. They're tied up in God's grand story on purpose by his design. And so we're going to take some time to look at a few specific threads of the great mosaic of God's story as told through the stories of his saints. But first, let's make sure we're all on the same page about this term saint, because it's used in different ways. Who is a saint? As my precious son Davy read for us from Ephesians, um, we learn that they are the people who are rooted and grounded in love. They have the strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge. So let's talk about that. We're going to start with a different kind of icon than the kind of icon Billy Joel is. I know it's hard for you to see, but I will describe to you. This is a hand-painted icon that a dear friend lent to me of Julian of Norwich, She is holding a cat in this hand and something very small in the other hand. So Julian of Norwich was an anchorite. Anchorites were sort of like uh, female holy hermits. They lived in a little tiny cell attached to a church and had very little interaction with the outside world. The way that they They were on mission was through their written word and what they were teaching the people around them. And so she is our earliest female author in the English language, which makes her pretty special. Um, So the cat in the picture is a symbol of really the only type of touch, living interaction that she had in her time in this cell. Now, the other little tiny thing that she's holding in her fingers is where I want to focus. In Julian's earlier life, 
she had lived through many difficult events. She was born in the mid-1300s and lived into the early 1400s. And that period of time meant that she lived through the Black Death that wiped out roughly half of the population of her city. She lived through a very violent peasants' revolt. She, some scholars, we don't know a lot about her life uh, other than what she wrote, but some scholars um, think that because of the tone of her writings that she was possibly a widow and probably a bereaved mother. And we do know that at the age of 30, she was on her deathbed with a very serious illness. A priest had come to administer her last rites and held a crucifix up over the foot of her bed. And although she recovered from this after about a week, uh, she was having a near-death experience and saw a series of 16 visions of Jesus in her time. One of the visions that she saw was this little pebble-looking thing that's in her icon, and she was very confused. She didn't know what it was. And so she asked God in her visions as she's laying there near death, And she heard from God that it was the world in all its fragility that God had made and that there was a trinity of truths about this world. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God protects it. In spite of everything Julian of Norwich had endured in her life up to her 30th year, she remained convicted of this truth that that little hazelnut representing this fragile world is shot through with God's love. Her famous words are this, In my folly, before this time, I often wondered why, by the great foreseeing wisdom of God, the onset of sin was not prevented. For then I thought all should have been well. This impulse of thought was much to be avoided, But nevertheless, I mourned and sorrowed because of it without reason and discretion. But Jesus, who in this vision informed me of all that is needed by me, answered with these words and said, Sin and death will not have the last word, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. These words were said most tenderly, showing no manner of blame to me, nor to any who shall be saved. So now we're going to move on to the 20th century, to the power of story through Sankofa, a racial righteousness pilgrimage. Sankofa is a word from the Akin tribe in Ghana. It's a portmanteau of san, ko, and fa. San means to return, ko means to go, and fa means to fetch, to, excuse me, to fetch, seek, and take. In other words, we must look backwards into our history before we can faithfully move forward together into the present and the future. So my daughter, Isabel, and I, she knows I'm going to talk about this, but she doesn't know that I'm going to make her wave her hand. Put your hand up. You can do this. There's Isabel. My daughter, Isabel, and I took a Sankofa journey two weeks ago. We flew into Atlanta got up at four in the morning. She loved that. We boarded a coach bus in the spirit of the Freedom Riders, and with nearly 50 fellow pilgrims, we visited major cities of the civil rights movement. We encountered many, many saints on that journey. 
saints who are still with us and saints of the past. We walked in the footsteps of Dr. Martin Luther King from his birthplace in Atlanta, which looks an awful lot like houses here in New England, by the way, to the Lorraine Motel in Memphis where he was assassinated. We heard from his wife, Coretta Scott King, who carried on his legacy until her passing in 2006. Here's what she said as a young widow with four children whose husband had been assassinated for simply asking people to love one another. People who think nonviolence is easy don't realize that it's a spiritual discipline that requires a great deal of strength, growth, and purging of the self so that one can overcome almost any obstacle for the good of all without being concerned about one's own welfare. That right there is an embodied discipleship masterclass in the cruciform way of taking up our cross and following Christ. We met a living saint, Lula Jo Williams. She came and spoke to us. She was um, one of the first full-time female hired staff as field staff at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Martin Luther King's organization. Her job before the Selma to Montgomery march, right before Bloody Sunday happened, was to make the lodging and food arrangements for the marchers along the four-day route. I've had an image of those marchers in their Sunday best walking along with these um, storm clouds gathering. It's a classic hanging on my wall. I never knew the woman behind making sure there was hospitality for all those people, but now I've had the privilege of speaking to her. She was the one on the Southern Christian Leadership Conference switchboard the night she had to take the call, the one that informed them that Dr. King had been murdered. She grieved not only his loss, but the brutalization and murder of friends and colleagues who never received justice simply because they were asking people to love one another. She spent her life giving glory to God for the grace and the breath he continues to give her to give herself as a living sacrifice. She's believing with all of her heart that nonviolent direct action and agape love would melt the hearts of those captive to the heresy of the Imago Dei in the narrative of racial difference. She's nearly 80 years old, and she is still living in faith into this Romans 12 life. We also met J.T. Johnson. He worked closely with Dr. King and was the right-hand man to Dr. King's mentor and successor, Pastor Ralph Abernathy. He, his image made worldwide um, photos on the covers of newspapers and magazines when he led an effort to integrate a whites-only pool at the Monson Motor Lodge in St. Augustine, Florida in 1964, and the hotel owner came and poured acid into the pool while they were in it. When I talked with him about his ministry inspiring mine, he said, just tell him the truth, Jen. Just tell him the truth. And what he meant was, we can tell the truth about how evil man can and has been, but we also tell the truth about how good and sustaining God is and how present Jesus is with us in the work he calls us to do. We also met Elaine Lee. She was our tour guide. She took us to several places in Memphis um, until we realized when she took us to a historical marker that was talking about these seven Lee sisters who had been arrested 17 times doing sit-ins, that 
she was on that sign. She was one of those sisters. And she and her seven sisters are credited with the desegregation of Memphis. Her face radiated the love of Christ. There was just joy, no bitterness. She knew the work that she was called to do. She knew God blessed her work. And even though she hasn't seen it move forward in the ways that she may have hoped, she has not lost her hope. Next, we went to Montgomery. We didn't get to meet Brian Stevenson. There was a woman on our tour who was very forward that she wanted to marry Brian Stevenson. It was really, it was cute. But we didn't get to meet him in person. But we did get to visit his handiwork. He has an indoor legacy museum and an outdoor lynching memorial. And Isabel says this was the most impactful portion of our trip for her. Um, And the outdoor lynching memorial, memorial, there's a lawn that's roughly comparable, I would say, to both the hilliness and the size of this lawn that we're sitting on to the street and all the way around. Um, The lawn is filled with coffin-like rectangular pillars that are hung in a powerful visual rhythm. There are thousands and thousands of lynching victims whose families are still waiting for justice, and their names are listed on these pillars. The social transgressions that are provided as the reason for the violent executions were posted throughout the memorial. Here's a couple. One, William Donegan was lynched for having a white wife. Two, David Walker, his wife, and their four children were lynched in Hickman, Kentucky, after Mr. Walker was accused of using inappropriate language with a white woman. This is so heavy, and I I really am so sorry, but we are the saints. We are one, and the one beloved Son of God who allowed himself to be lynched on a cross for us. Jesus did not say, and this is from our dear sister Julian of Norwich, Jesus did not say, thou shalt not be tempested, thou shalt not be travailed, thou shalt not be diseased. But Jesus did say, thou shalt not be overcome. So I'll close with the stories of two final saints who help us to see this truth. One saint sitting among us is my daughter Isabel. I was concerned for her mental health, seeing so much of the terrible evil humans can inflict on each other on this trip. And I prayed that she wouldn't come away with a Billy Joel hopelessness, that this will just go on and on and on and on. But I should have known better about her and about Jesus. Because like Julian of Norwich, my resilient, cherished daughter was also able to see what was true in the midst of so much evil. She could see those who had been harmed overcoming their harm because of their unity in Christ, because of their faith in the power of his liberation and love proclaimed over and over, and because the civil rights movement was a profoundly Christian movement focused on Jesus. At our Sankofa Pilgrimage's closing gathering, Isabel spoke up and articulated her personal conviction sorry, her personal connection to both the difficult history that we had just observed and the overcoming hope that she embodies in her own person through the ancestral heritage that is in her. 
my beautiful girl didn't need to turn her face away from the ghastly realities of evil in this world to be able to articulate in her own way, just like Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Our final saint of our sermon journey today, Henri Nouwen, summed this idea up beautifully in this way. This world lies in the power of the evil one. The world does not recognize the light that shines in the darkness. It never did. It never will. But there are people who, in the midst of the world, live with the knowledge that he is alive, he dwells within us, that he has overcome the power of death and opens the way to glory. Are there people who come together, gather, who come around the table and do what he did, a feast, in memory of him? Are there people who keep telling each other the stories of hope and together go out to care for their fellow human beings, not pretending to solve all the problems, but to bring a smile to a dying man and a little hope to a lonely child? It is so little so unspectacular, yes, so hidden, this Eucharistic life. But it is like yeast, like a mustard seed. It is what keeps faith, hope, and love alive in a world that is constantly on the brink of self-destruction. After we close this sermon and prayer together, my dear husband Eric will come up here and lead us in the litany of the saints. Each saint we will name together has a story that's part of God's story. You're not expected to know them all off the top of your head today. But I would invite you to consider it an invitation from Jesus to get curious about one or two of the saints that you don't know and see what Jesus has for you in their story. Later, in our time of Eucharistic feast, we'll remember those loved ones we've personally lost. It is right to grieve. Jesus grieved Lazarus' death, and Jesus inhabits all our sorrows with us. If you are grieving with us today, either a loved one lost or the brokenness of this sin-sick world, or both, your grief is welcome here, and we grieve with you. None of us has been left untouched by the groanings of a world still captive to sin. Like Julian of Norwich, Jesus invites us to bring him our toughest questions, and he is gentle with us in the wrestling. So now let's pray. Would you please take a moment to close your eyes, to breathe in deeply. The Holy Spirit is described as breath. Breathe him in and picture Jesus. We've journeyed through some really hard things together today. I'm wondering what hard things are on your heart that you'd like to ask Jesus about? He welcomes your questions. His answer may not come right away. He may ask you to wait. Or he may give you something really beautiful in this moment. But in either case, as Julian of Norwich experienced, he will meet you most tenderly, showing no manner of blame. So now, I give you a moment of silence for you and Jesus to spend together.
Jesus, empower us to live like your saints, to know the depth and breadth and height of your great love for us, and so to find our strength in you, to pass through this parched valley of weeping and make it a place of life-giving springs, believing with our whole hearts that all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. For the glory of your name and the care of your creation. Amen.